are back in school in person classes. And uh, so a lot of our, our conversation around the dinner table kind of centers on the interactions that they're having with other kids and with teachers and, and that's fun. Um, one of those conversations reminded me of something that happened to me back when I was in school. Um, at one point, I had made a teacher so upset with me uh, that she called my house demanding a parent-teacher conference. Uh, you see, what had happened was uh, my dad was one of these guys, he was a jack of all trades. He was into everything. He was a speed skater and a martial artist and a drummer and he became a DJ. And, and when he DJed enough parties, he sees that there's these balloon decorations, these big arches and columns and he looks and he says, I think I can do that. So he went around the country learning how to, to do this. Eventually, our house got a little bit too small for all the things my dad had going on. And he figured, I need a home base of operations. So he opened a retail store out of which he sold the balloon decorations and other party decor. And it was at around this time that I was uh, standing in front of my class in elementary school and, and, the, and the assignment was tell the class what your parents do for a living. And uh, so this was my opportunity to share with the world how cool my dad is, right? And so I stood in front of the class and I said, well, my dad owns a balloon store. He's also a DJ and a drummer in a rock band and he teaches karate. And so of course the teacher looked at me like she didn't believe a word I was saying. And she asked uh, somewhat sarcastically, uh, and does your dad do anything else? And I said, yes, he's also a champion speed skater, but he doesn't make any money doing that. He's just real fast, wins a lot of races. And 72 hours later, I found myself in a parent-teacher conference. Uh, she thought I was making the whole thing up. And so my dad came in and he verified for her that he does in fact do all these things. Uh, she gave him the same look that she gave me. Uh, and you can't blame the teacher, right? Because we have a tendency to question the things that people say to us, especially if those things are a little bit out of the ordinary, right? Now, now fast forward to present day, my youngest daughter, her favorite thing in the whole world is uh, fun facts. She has memorized an outrageous amount of perfectly random information. And she's like a fun fact ninja. She can just hit you with one when you least expect it. So it was a couple weeks ago and uh, she said, Dad, did you know that Bob Marley's son was born in Delaware? And I said to her, that doesn't sound right to me. I don't know where you heard it. I don't know who told you that. I don't know where you read it, but I don't think that that's right. And now I've researched since then, and it turns out she's correct. Bob Marley's son was born in Delaware, which is cool because I like to learn new things. But the point is, it's in our nature to be a little skeptical of the things that people say to us, right? We like to trust, but verify. We want to know what's really real. We want the facts. That is how God has created us to think, right? Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. Colossians says that all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found in Christ. And when we're told how we should love God, we're told we should love God with all of our heart, all of our mind, all of our strength. 
God has blessed us with this mind so that we can use reason and logic so that we can be seekers of the truth. We want to know what's real. And I know that that runs contrary to what you've heard a lot of Facebook theologians say. <laughs> because if you've spent any amount of time online, you've definitely come across somebody who said, well, I've read the Bible and kids, that's how it always starts with these people. I've read the Bible and, and I don't think that I can give up my reason and my intellect to just have this blind faith. And whenever I hear somebody say that, I think to myself, we must be reading different Bibles. Um, because I've been reading this Bible over here, and what it says is that God has taken on flesh and stepped into history to interact with us face to face. And so I don't get the impression that that God wants us to have a blind faith, right? The idea at its core seems silly to me. Let's have a quick look at uh, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. It says, But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anybody who asks you for a reason for the hope that is within you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. You see, we're told we do have a faith. We do have a hope for our lives, but that hope is grounded in something. We have a reason to believe what we believe, right? It, it's not that you have faith or truth. It's that you have faith because you have truth. And so it is with that in mind this morning that we are gonna look at three facts about the resurrection of Christ. Three reasons that we can believe that this is a true story. And it's a topic that we have to get right. Because if, if the resurrection story is just a fairy tale that we tell ourselves, then we are wasting our time here worshiping somebody who died and stayed dead just like everybody else. Right? That we were just wasting our time being in church this morning. Even, even Paul says that if Christ wasn't raised from the dead, your faith is futile and you are still dead in your sins. We have to know that we know so that we can have truth and then have faith. So let's just roll right into it because time is short this morning. Uh, we're just going to go right into fact one. Fact number one. Christ has left the tomb empty. I'm going to head over to uh, Mark right now in chapter 16. It says, when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb and they were saying to one another, who's going to roll away the stone, the stone at the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe. And they were alarmed. And they said to him, excuse me, he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who is crucified, but he is risen and he is not here. See, this is the place where they laid him. 
But go tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. It is a historical fact that the tomb was left empty. Now it was a long time ago. How can we be sure? Well, we know that it's a fact in part because we are told who it is that discovers the empty tomb. Mark says that it's women. Now, this is a detail, you know, when you hear that Mary and, and Mary, the mother of Jesus and Solomon, they went out to the tomb. This is a detail that's super important, but a lot of times it's just glossed over because it's easy to read past it really quick. But to understand the significance of this, you have to understand how women were treated in first century Jewish culture. Society treated them like second class citizens. They had no credibility. Nobody listened to a word that women said. In fact, the Jewish uh, historian Josephus said that women were not even allowed to testify in court because their testimony just wasn't valued. But we see here that Mark writes down that it's women that go discover the tomb. This would have been an awkward, kind of embarrassing detail for Mark to write down at that time. Because in a way, he's just kind of shooting his own credibility in the foot by saying it's women that went and saw the tomb empty. By the way, uh, just as a really super quick side note, I absolutely love the way that Mark is writing right now in this story. You see, because Mark is just sort of writing the details as they happen, faithfully recording everything. Hundreds of years later, there, there were people who made uh, forgery gospels that sort of forged their name in and, and kind of recreated the whole resurrection story. And if you ever read through one of these, they're pretty funny because they say that the stone exploded away from the tomb and angels flew down from heaven and a cross came out of the tomb and the cross was a talking cross. And the voice from heaven said, have you preached to those who have fallen asleep? And the cross answered, yay. <laughs> But, but Mark just writes the facts as they are. We look at Mark and, and he says, there's a young man and he's just sitting on the tomb. And he says, you're looking for Jesus. He's not here. Mark just faithfully records the details of the story. But yeah, it's women that find the tomb. And this is very interesting because society did not value the testimony of women. But I want to tell you this, that what society values and what God values are often two completely different things. That's the way it was then, that's the way it was today. This wasn't the first time that society and God didn't see things the same way and, and it wouldn't be the last, right? But, but when society said, we don't value the testimony of women, I think it's awesome that God said, I value the testimony of women. And so in his sovereignty, he makes it women that go and discover the empty tomb. Now, historians use what's called the criterion of embarrassment. They say if a writer writes something down in his story, a little detail that would be embarrassing to him, we can tell that detail is probably true because otherwise he would have left it out. And so we can know that the tomb was empty in part because we know who discovered the empty tomb. It was women. But also, there, there's more. We have not only Christian writings that tell us the tomb is empty, but we have Jewish writings that confirm for us that the tomb was empty. You see, I don't, uh, I don't know if you know this, but the Jewish high council, they weren't the biggest fans of the Christian movement. 
And when people ran around and they were saying, Jesus is risen, Jesus is risen, they made an official response called a polemic. And, and what did they say? Did they say, oh, these Christians, they must be drinking. Clearly they're crazy. No. They said, well, we know what happened. The disciples came and stole the body. And by creating that explanation, what they've done for us, if they that actually verified in history that the tomb was in fact empty. Now we have Christian writers and Jewish writers agreeing on the same detail. There's no body in the tomb. That's another way that we know that the tomb was empty, but there's more. And, and I'll finish this quick because I don't want to beat this to death, but the Christian movement exploded out of Jerusalem at the time of the resurrection. Now, the hardest place in the whole world to begin a Christian movement would have been Jerusalem. You see, everybody in Jerusalem knew Jesus, love him or hate him, you knew who he was, you knew what he was telling the people, and he was crucified just outside the city and laid to rest in the city. So if somebody came to you and they said, Jesus is risen and we are worshiping him as God, it would have been a very simple task for you to say, well, let me see for myself. You could have strolled down to the tomb and seen it with your own eyes. Historians agree that if there was a body still in the tomb, if the tomb was still sealed, there would be no Christian movement exploding out of Jerusalem. But we know that there was, and it's the reason that we're here today. So for all those reasons, we know that the tomb was left empty. Fact number two, there were eyewitnesses that actually saw the resurrected Christ. And, and I love this because, listen, we are told 12 times in Scripture that there are eyewitnesses. There are five separate books that record this by four separate authors written at four separate times that say that more than 500 people saw Jesus. Not in one day, but over a span of 40 days. Sometimes they saw him and it was a surprise to them. Sometimes they saw him by appointment. But when you have 500 people who have all seen the same person recorded in history like this, let me tell you, Jesus was everywhere during these 40 days. But how can we know for sure? Well, let's uh, head over to... We're going to go to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're going to look at what Paul wrote. He said, Now I remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and he was raised on the third day in abundance, in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom were still alive, though some had fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he also appeared to me. How do we know that we can trust what Paul is saying? <laughs> well, the first thing is, Paul's writing 1 Corinthians uh, in about 20 years, within 20 years of, of the time of the crucifixion. 
So this is a very, very, very early source. This isn't somebody that hundreds of years later is telling a story. This is somebody who is in the same generation. And what's even better is he's not just telling us that people have seen Christ. He's quoting an older tradition. He's saying, I'm sharing with you what was also shared with me. He's saying, you all know the story. Everybody has seen Jesus. I've seen Jesus. James has seen Jesus. Peter has seen Jesus. Cephas has seen Jesus. 500 people at the same time saw Jesus. And here's the kicker, folks. He says, and most of them are still alive. We know that this is what's called a falsifiable claim. Now, you might say, falsifiable? That doesn't sound very positive, Mike. I don't know if I want to believe a falsifiable claim. But the word falsifiable, falsifiable, it just means testable. What that means is, at the time that Paul is writing this, you could have gone to any one of these eyewitnesses and verified for yourself. It's a falsifiable claim. So let me just give you a quick example of what the difference would be. If, um, if I had said to you, you know what? Once while I was in New Orleans, I bought a steak and it only cost me a dollar. It was delicious. It's not a falsifiable claim. The steak is long gone. That time is long gone. There's no witnesses. You just have to take my word for it. But if I told you, Fry's is having a sale. A steak is buy one, get one free. And the sale is still going on. You could actually walk on down to Fry's. You could drive to Fry's. Um, and you can see that the sale is still happening, that is now a testable claim. It's a falsifiable claim. And whenever that happens in history, historians go, we've struck pay dirt. That's like gold. So there's a falsifiable claim being made, but also we know that there are eyewitnesses because we know that there were unbelievers who radically changed and became believers instantly upon seeing the risen Christ. One was Saul of Tarsus. Now, if you don't know who Saul is, he would later become Paul, who's writing to the Corinthians. We first learned about Saul in Acts. And what it says is that when Stephen, the, the disciple, was being martyred, when he was being stoned to death because of his beliefs, it was Saul who was standing there approving the execution. Saul left that site and he went to the high priest and he said, please write me a letter so I can go find the rest of the Christians, men and women, and bring them the same justice. Acts says that, that when Paul spoke or when Saul spoke, that it was, it was with murder and threat. Christians were terrified of Saul. But then the Bible says that Saul... He saw Christ face to face and instantly, instantly became a believer in Christ and worshiped Christ as God. What would it take for somebody who believes something so strongly that they're willing to go out and kill for that belief to suddenly, to suddenly worship that man as God? Only, only seeing the risen Christ is the only thing that would do it. Who else? Who else was a, an unbeliever who, who suddenly converted? How about James, the brother of Jesus? We know from history that James never believed in Jesus while Jesus was alive. 
And if you have siblings, you could probably understand why, right? What would it take to convince you that your sibling was, uh, was the son of God? Probably a lot, right? And so James never really believed in Jesus while Jesus was alive. But then suddenly, James came to believe in Christ quickly and went to his death believing in Christ. And we know that the reason that happened is because James is recorded in history as seeing the resurrected Christ. Let's just roll right on through. Fact number three, we'll do this super fast. Uh, we know that the disciples' lives were radically changed. You know the story. Listen, everybody was all full of bravery when Jesus was still around. Oh, Jesus, we will follow you anywhere. Oh, Jesus, we're with you to the end. But what happened when Romans came and they took Jesus and Jesus was on the cross? The disciples scattered. They were scared. They ran. They left town. Why? Well, because they didn't expect any of this to happen. You know what they thought? They thought Jesus was going to come. He's going to, he's going to destroy the government. He's going to change society. Jesus is going to reign forever and ever. And when he was captured and put on the cross, they went, uh-oh. They hid. Peter denied Christ three times. Once to a little girl. Hey, that guy, he knows Jesus. I've seen him. Oh, no, no, no. Not me. Not me. They left. And while Jesus was in the tomb, what did they do? They left town. Some of them hid. Some of them went back to being fishermen. They were gone. Do you know that it was only about a week later that they were preaching the word of God? They, went, they got filled with bravery. They became bold and they went out saying, Christ is risen. They weren't afraid anymore. Why? Why? Because they went face to face with a resurrected Jesus. We know it's a historical fact that these people who were once afraid were filled with boldness. And that's how we know that they met with the resurrected Jesus. They eventually went to their death, changed. Now listen, uh, people will say that they believe a lot of things, but people don't die for their beliefs unless they are very serious, unless they are 100% convinced. And did you know that of all the apostles, they were, they were martyred, they met their death in terrible persecution, and not one of them, not a single person that saw the resurrected Christ ever went, you know what, I changed my mind, that must not have been Jesus. I changed my mind, he must not be God. No, every single one of them went to their death proclaiming, he is risen and I worship him, he is the Lord. And so when we look back and we see somebody is that strong in their beliefs, we know that they were affected by something and it was the resurrected Christ, right? Peter, uh, who was once so afraid that he ran away from a little girl, right? Saying, there he, he, that guy knows Jesus, Peter ran. Do you know that he went to his death crucified proclaiming Lord Jesus is God? James, the brother of Jesus who didn't believe in Jesus, met his death proclaiming that Jesus is Lord. John, he was boiled. I don't even want to talk about that one. I don't even understand how somebody could be boiled in a pot of oil and still go, yes, Jesus is Lord. So what do we know? Let's recap real quick. Uh, we know that the tomb was found empty. We know because it's recorded in history, not just by Christians, 
but by the Jews as well. We have confirmation. We know that more than 500 people saw the resurrected Christ. It's written into history and it's verified. There's a falsifiable claim that we can actually check on. It's historical painter. We know that non-believers became believers. We know that believers radically changed. We can sit here and we can know that Jesus did what he said he was going to do. That he is who he said he is. And because of who he is, this morning, we can be bold and we can be filled with the Holy Spirit. We can go out, we can tell people, he's risen, I know. I have a reason to believe what I believe. I have truth and therefore I have faith. Let me share it with you. We can be confident. We can be confident that the resurrected Christ is alive this morning. He's seated at the Father's right hand, interceding for us. And this morning, I want to encourage you that that same power that resurrected Christ from the grave, it's, it's more than what we need. Whatever, whatever challenges, whatever, whatever stresses, whatever problems we run into this week, we have a risen Savior that is interceding for us right now. It's not a story, it's not a fairy tale. It's real. Jesus is alive this morning. Let it make you bold, let, it, let that encourage you, right? I wanna tell you this, we belong to Christ and Christ is alive. And we know that we know.